Welcome to We Fight For That from the Public Interest Advocacy Centre. My name is John Lawford, and I'm the Executive Director and General Counsel at PIAC. If you want lower cell phone bills, if you want a refund from a flight you couldn't take, or if you want to be treated better by your bank, we fight for that. Time for another round of consumer protection. Welcome to We Fight For That, episode four. Today's topic is broadcasting and why it matters to you as a consumer in Canada, and specifically what the federal government is doing about that. And I have a wonderful guest who I'll introduce in a moment, but I just wanted to do a little holiday wrap up and thank you to folks for sticking with us. We just got this podcast started at the end of the year, and we tend to do far more frequent uh, updates. I won't commit to any particular schedule, but we'll try to make it a couple times a month going forward. So we have three, and this is the fourth one. We're looking to uh, do some issues in the new year, including privacy, a lot of privacy moves going on, both internationally and in Canada, new legislation coming, uh, studies on various bills, provincial action, federal action. It's, it's a wild free-for-all, and I, I have a guest lined up for that already. So that'll be early in the new year. And then we have airlines and refunds. So PX has been active in Parliament on refunds for you from flights you couldn't take or you had to take during COVID to get home. And that's really super interesting. And we went to Parliament on that. And we're going to give you a breakdown of what happened there and what you can do to get your money back. Then we have another uh, upcoming uh, series, I think you would call it. Uh, so far, I've got five parts, but I can see it going to 10 or 20 at this point problems at the CRTC and problems in particular that groups like ours and smaller players are having in dealing with CRTC and whether they're a good little regulatory agency or a bad little regulatory agency. And I, I think they've been more naughty than nice, certainly this year, and, and I don't see them changing their habits going forward. So it's going to be a bit of a, a bit of a hit list, but I think it's only fair to bring up the problems that smaller providers are having and consumer groups with the CRTC. And we'll be doing that, as I said, in at least five parts starting uh, sometime in, uh, let's say, after a certain hearing in January. And then uh, lastly, we've got uh, an update on our COVID alert app application and the whole privacy aspects of a pandemic response. So that's what you can look forward to in the uh, coming two months or so as we up the pace. Now I'm going to introduce our guest today, who is Monica Auer. She's the Executive Director at Canada's Forum on Research and Policy and Communications, or FRPC, as we all call the group. And Monica has been the Executive Director there for a while, and, and she's got an interesting background that is going to help us today because she was starting her career at CRTC, um, working in broadcast regulation and the finer details in particular, sort of, she's a numbers person and um, then worked at CBC. So moving over in uh, the 90s to work for them, specifically on regulation that they are uh, subjected to by the CRTC. And then after a stint doing some consulting work and so on, she went to law school. And so Monica got called to the bar in 2006 and then started her own practice in particular uh, on matters relating to CRTC work and broadcasting, and then now uh, runs FRPC. So full disclosure as well, Monica is a board member of PIAC and has been for, uh, I guess, a year. So I just wanted to welcome you, Monica, and thank you very much for coming to explain broadcasting and what it matters to consumers today. Thanks, John. I really appreciate the invitation. 
I'm not sure I did your um, your background justice. I just think of you as Monica, the person that knows everything about broadcasting. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm going to be trying to not talk today and make you do most of the work. Oh, hey, sounds like fun. <laughs> okay, great. So what we have on the menu seems like an issue that's not really that much of a consumer issue. It was certainly over the years... My sense of it is that people don't think of what they watch on television or now online as very much the government's business. And, you know, with free TV and that sort of era, there was certainly a concept that people were were listening and watching as citizens, but not so much that they were consumers of broadcast media. Certainly cable television changed that and then pay-per-view and satellite TV and now um, streaming services, of course, people are up to maybe five or 10 subscriptions to these various things. And it's a big consumer issue. But putting a consumer lens on it is something that, that I think is, is new-ish. But to be honest, the government's always had very, very much control over this area. And that's something I think not everybody fully grasps. So what we're going to talk today about is a big rewrite of how that's done. And, and to some extent, you have to have someone on who knows how it has been done in the past. And that's Monica and, and where it could go in the future. So there's a new broadcasting bill. Some might have caught the attention of everybody out there in consumer land because there's been a lot of press on, on changing how Netflix and other over-the-top services are regulated and whether they will have to put uh, money towards Canadian content so that they are, quote-unquote, on a level playing field, as our minister, uh, Gibo of uh, Canadian Heritage, has called it in the Commons. So I'd like, if you don't mind, Monica, we could have you sort of sketch out what this new broadcasting legislation from the federal government is meant to try to do, I mean, beyond that little thumbnail that I gave to people, because I think it's doing that, but a lot more. Can you try to explain it in terms that people would would get? Thanks, John. And thank you for the introduction as well. Bill C-10 attempts to cure, if not patch, a gaping wound that exists right now with the 1991 Broadcasting Act. And the gaping wound has to do with online programming services. As most people know, the internet developed over 20 years ago And when it was first introduced, the CRTC decided that programming that was carried online was a type of broadcasting, but that it would not regulate it. It exempted online programming from regulation. But of course, as we know, Netflix and other services have become extremely popular among Canadian households. And as a result, there are several concerns. First, that there is money leaking out of the broadcasting system from Canada to the United States. Second, that there may not be as much financial support for the production and creation of Canadian programming as may actually be possible. And third, there's a concern, I suspect, overall about the impact of online services, perhaps in general, rather than specifically for programming, with respect to news and democracy. So C-10, the Bill C-10, attempts to cure the problem of online services by stating very clearly for the first time that online programming services can be regulated. Unfortunately, the problem with C10 is that rather than either 
you know, performing surgery to actually fix the problem, it is instead applying a series of band-aids. On the one hand, it expands the CRTC's power over online services. It gives the CRTC the tremendous power to levy administrative fines if broadcasters and online services don't comply. But on the other hand, it leaves many other problems unresolved. And what's worse, of course, it removes what used to be the basic feature of the Broadcasting Act, which was Canadian ownership and control of Canada's broadcasting system. Okay. Wow. Well, um, I just got to say your choice of metaphors, <laughs> uh, open wound, surgery, and Band-Aids. You know, this is pretty serious stuff. <laughs> Obviously, uh, it's, it's a big change, just so people know what's trying to be done, trying to address what is, I think, from what I'm hearing from you, perceived in in broadcasting circles as a big problem, which is the effect of the um, new services that are delivered over the internet. So you can watch things like Netflix, whatever you want on your computer or, you know, your home TV now that is connected to the internet. So that's roughly the issue, but frightening, you know, kind of metaphor <laughs> to and bring. I apologize. Up. No, no, it's, it's a... so close to Christmas. Nobody wants to think about <laughs> blood and gore, but but that's the depressing reality for anybody who's looking at this proposed set of amendments carefully. Well, can I, I there, you went through a lot of detail there that I think we can unpack it before we get into, you know, CRTC's new powers and whether they're they're going to be a skilled surgeon or, or somebody just hacking away, <laughs> um, which seems to be the issue here. But uh, let's, let's, let's just back up. You, you said right at the start, that the online services in the U.S. Uh, delivered over the top, we'll call it, meaning running on the internet services, are exempted from regulation. I, and I think some people don't know what the baseline of regulation you were talking about is and why it matters that they were exempted from that. So do you mind backing up to give us a little more sort of groundwork on, on what that regulation was and what it did for Canadian broadcasting for the, let's call them the traditional broadcasters in Canada? Absolutely. From about the 1920s, when radio waves first began to be exploited, there was a concern about, first of all, Canadians' right to control the airwaves over their own country. And that right was eventually transformed into the notion that people who want to use the airwaves in Canada for broadcasting purposes need to have some form of approval. And there were two reasons for this. The first is the popular one that, you know, the, at the time from about the 1920s to probably the 1980s, the amount of usable spectrum for television and radio was limited so that if everybody who wanted to start a radio or television service simply began to broadcast, all you would hear is cacophony. You'd hear nothing but noise. So licensing was introduced as a way simply to ensure that, first of all, as many of the usable frequencies in each urban area or even the larger, well-populated non-urban areas could have access to usable sound without having so much interference and distortion from competitors. But the secondary reason, which is often uh, not as well developed or understood, is that at the time in the 1920s and 1930s, there were newspaper reports from the United States in which Canadian broadcasters, major broadcasters, 
believed, stated their belief that the best way to provide Canadians with high quality programming service was to take over Canada's airwaves so that you would simply make all Canadian programming services affiliates of CBS, NBC and ABC. And after all, if they Canadians wanted good programming, they couldn't do it themselves, so they should rely on Americans. And so the concern was that Canadians would have very little access, first of all, to the news that mattered to them in their local communities, in their provinces and across the country. And secondly, that they would not have access to the stories. And this is the popular term, the stories that entertain and pass on what we value as Canadians. Many people I have heard, and I've heard this since the 1980s when I first worked at the CRTC, are happy to say values schmalues. You know, if you, what difference does it make whether you're American or whether you're watching an American program or uh, a Canadian program? And I can remember the first time I heard one of my young children, I think he was seven at the time, refer to Canada's, Canada's president. <laughs> yeah. How shocked I was. So, it's the notion that we have values as a country, as does every other country on the planet, and we're entitled to promote those values because we believe that they are important, whether they're simply about the things we hold dear in society or, or the things we hold dear in our political life or any other aspect of our lives. Mm-hmm. So I think I've drifted off course there. No, but- no, no. You're 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 telling you're telling people the uh, the history from your dot forward, and just one of the aspects that you didn't get to. Maybe we're getting to it. I cut you off, but the idea of this cultural sovereignty that we have the right to show people things that happen in Canada on either the news because it's about their local living conditions and their own democracy, or on the drama side to show you that. Yes, indeed, people live in this country and they talk this way and they, you know, the landscape looks like this, not like West Virginia, that that's important. And that came to a head, I think, relatively early, didn't it? I mean, there was this aired commission that came up with the idea of the CBC. Is that where the CBC came from? Just so people know. Yes, that was where the CBC came from. And for those of you who would like to sleep more easily at night, the forum wrote a very long boring and dry paper on the CBC and the history of its financing. But so if you want to put yourself to sleep one night, that's a good way to do it. That's on your website. It's on our website. And I think we called it uh, Frodo. We were looking for data on the, on the CBC and Frodo had it easier. (laughs) So the key is FRPC and Frodo in Google in the Google search or in any search engine, you might find it that way. But in any event, yes, the two concerns were both news and drama and one aspect of drama, we keep, you know, all, all my professional career, I've heard about the idea of conveying stories, but it's also conveying a sense of our own history, which is, for many people, is, is not as well emphasized as in, in Canadian, for, for Canadians as one might like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not excluding documentary people from, from my vision of, you know, Canadian stories either. It's funny, you know, when you talk broadcasting with broadcasting people, <laughs> I don't do broadcasting. I, I came to this late. I do telecom and uh, other things, uh, privacy and that. And whenever I talk to, to broadcasting people, you, you start the conversation, you, you think you know what you're talking about, and then they, they throw these terms at you like, well, of course, you know, there's, yes, the documentary filmmaker people, and then there's scripted drama, and then, then there's reality shows, and you're like, oh, just stop. I don't understand what you're talking about. Why does this matter? And it turns out it all does matter. And in some excruciating detail, honestly, it does matter, especially for something we're going to get to after 
about the next 10 minutes, which is CanCon. Just wait for it, people. This is supposed to be why you care about this stuff, but it's even more Byzantine. This is classic Canada than you can imagine. And it means different things to French and English and other groups, but we'll get there. Um, okay. So I'm going to actually take you back, Monica, to a couple of the things you said in your opening uh, statement about like, why, why are we here with this new bill? Just to bring people back to the fact that we've got a bill in front of Parliament, C-10. You said the concerns that were driving it were whether money is like flowing out of Canada to the U.S. Uh, over the top broadcasters, whether some of that money should come back to the Canadian system, I'll call it, because I know that's what people have a fetish about calling it here, to support Canadian content. Again, whatever that is, we'll get to it. And then lastly, the impact on news and democracy. And I'm going to kind of park the news and democracy piece of it, because I understand from hearing the minister speak that uh, he, Mr. Gibo, has promised a second bill that will try to deal with the problems of keeping I'll just say it this way, Canadian news, Canadian enough <laughs> and supporting Canadian news organizations and that sort of stuff in a, in a future piece of legislation. I think that's right. Am I right? Yes. Okay. That's what I heard when I listened to the minister in the house. That's what I saw okay. when I was rereading the transcript. And unfortunately, it's just somewhat unclear, first of all, what that might encompass. Secondly, when it might be introduced, considering sure, but, that but the rumors are strong right now of a, of a spring election. Yeah, well, you know, we can't we can't know when the government will change or be continued in whatever form or whatever. But I, I was just mentioning because I want to take that off the list. I really want to focus sure. on the money because this is this folks at home is the reason why we're <laughs> why we're having this fight about broadcasting is there's more money than ever going into productions uh, of uh, television and so on in Canada. You and I are paying more than ever we have for video products and access to various services. As I mentioned, a lot of people have, have subscriptions to things that they may not consider to be, you know, broadcasting and may or may not be thrown into this bucket, for example, you know, Twitch TV. So if you're a gamer, does that, is that going to get thrown in this bucket as broadcasting? There's people that have Spotify uh, on their phone and uh, home uh, computer that they listen to music all day. That's a foreign service. Is it going to get tossed in here as an audio service? You know, there's, there's already, as I mentioned, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, you know, Disney Plus, all these over-the-top video services. There's many more coming. There's podcasts. Like, where does it end? What are we talking about? And if people are paying now subscriptions and even things like Patreon to get on your certain podcast feeds, are we going to dip into that? There's money flowing around and the concern has come to a head where there is a system in Canada in place to make sure that the regulation of broadcasting results in some money going some places. And that's where I think, Monica, you might have lost some people. And if you, again, don't mind a little excursion into the way the money flows now and the funds that are, are set up so that, say, Bell Media or Rogers Media has to support what we call the Canadian system. Okay. One thing to bear in mind is that uh, from the 1920s to 1967, Parliament did not clearly establish any kind of meaningful regulatory framework for Canadian content or Canadian programming or Canadians' access to Canadian services. So although broadcasting has existed for more than a century, we have only had regulation with respect to what is available to Canadians since 1968. Then when you think about the money side of it, initially in 68, 
although I think the, 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 the CRTC commissioners who were there in 1968 would probably disagree, was a relatively simpler time because you had three types of broadcasting services, radio, TV, and then this new thing called cable. Cable at the time was about 18 years old, and it was the baby of the three types of broadcasters. And so the CRTC for some time left it alone. Then in 1975, it decided that cable companies should do a little bit more to support the availability of Canadian programming. All of that went along with a focus on radio and TV until the early 1990s. And when I say a focus on radio and TV, CRTC did two things. First, it set regulations requiring a, a, a minimum level of, of Canadian content. And secondly, it encouraged broadcasters to please, please, please actually spend some money on high quality Canadian programming. However, it wasn't until 1993 that the CRTC was finally able to introduce a new source of funding for Canadian programming through something called the Canadian Media Fund and annual payments from cable systems to support Canadian programming. The theory then, as now, is that if you're going to use Canadian programming in your own business, then you should help to support its creation. And so cable companies and also satellite companies today and for many several decades now have every year paid into funds that support the creation of Canadian programming. As for conventional broadcasters, radio and television, they are they are expected both to exhibit Canadian programming and to have fixed levels of expenditures on Canadian programming. The way it's done is a little bit different for television because and, and for radio because the types of programs are different. Obviously, you have longer form content in television and radio. You're looking at two to, you know, two or three minute long at most musical creations. And so, whereas television broadcasters are encouraged to actually create television programs, uh, radio broadcasters are encouraged to support institutions or private institutions that produce more Canadian music. So right. these days we have a system in which the conventional licensed radio and television and distribution services like cable and satellite all funnel some money into the system for the production of Canadian programming. And when I say the production of Canadian content, it is not simply that we want to have more hours of snow broadcast on the air. We're really hoping as well to ensure that Canadians, talented and skilled Canadians who are interested in news and stories, et cetera, have an opportunity to work in Canada. So this is also an employment issue and of course related to employment, although I, I know this sounds like I'm digressing, is the concept of taxes. The larger the base of people working in broadcasting, the more taxes those people will pay to the system. So we want to have Canadians employed. We want everybody to help support Canadian society and the mechanism is of course through taxes. Well, and just to take it one more, one more step of abstraction away from people. We also don't want all of our creative Canadian people to go live in LA, right? I mean, you want people who are creative and um, interesting thinkers and, and, and talented actors 
and news reporters to stay in the country and not all just go work in the United States where there's a big market. I presume that's part of this I think too. the idea is that we want to give them the option of staying in Canada. <laughs> that's very Canadian. <laughs> you don't want to win them. You won't want them to stay here and win. You just want to maybe, you know, go for bronze. I don't know. Anyway, sorry, I just, I, I can't resist. But, you know, you said something when you were explaining all that. Total light bulb went off, and this is rare for me to have people convince me just by chit-chatting, but well done. I, I never really noticed the the split between the cable um, and satellite distributors of programming, which they generally, in the past at least, until they got into doing their own, they were just you know, distributing other people's programs, basically TV programs over cable, right, or over the satellite. And that those folks were expected to shave off some dough and give it to the Canadian Media Fund that would then produce the programs. But then in return, the conventional radio and TV broadcasters would have to broadcast the Canadian content created through the fund, like exhibit it, as you said. In other words, you hear Brian Adams on the radio or you see, see, I don't want to say that terrible program I hate the beachcombers on, uh, on TV stations. And then of course they get recycled and distributed over satellite and cable systems. But that was the, that was the system. So, you know, it just gave me this light bulb moment where I thought, yeah, maybe that's why we're having so much trouble with where to put over the tops. Do we conceptually in these old ways of thinking, think of them as broadcasters like conventional TV and radio broadcasters, or do we think of them as, cable systems that just happen to be delivered over the internet. And, you know, that might help explain why there's this huge divide. And for the folks following along at home, there is a big fight on now between people who think, I think, without knowing it subconsciously, like I just guess I've been doing, that you conceive of over-the-top signals coming into Canada over the internet as either broadcasting or or distribution of a cable-type thing it's interesting i don't know maybe i'm making too much of that but no it's it's exactly the division and in fact uh when the forum made its submission to the broadcasting and telecommunications legislative review panel which reported was it this year already no last january last january January. this january this january 2020 yeah yes in in 2019 there was this huge panel report that came out dealing with it when we filed our submission we focused not so much on broadcasters or on the subset of broadcasters known as distributors but as those who want to provide just programming those who want to distribute programming and those who might want to do both So there are really three variants. There are people who really don't have much of an interest in creating their own distribution system. There are people who distribute without necessarily wanting to engage in the messy business of audiovisual program production. And then there are the groups like, let's say right now, Bell and Quebec Corps and a number of the other larger players who do both. They They create programming and they distribute it. So it's... What we're getting into in, in the 21st century, I think, I'm hoping, is that we'll have this progression towards the notion that when we communicate, we're operating in a communication system and we're doing one of those three things. We are providing content, we are distributing content, or we are both providing and distributing content. Now, the distinction between just providing programming content and then distributing content becomes a very important one. Because as I mentioned, in the case of distribution, for instance, right now, cable companies and satellite companies have to provide financial support for Canadian uh, content production. As well, however, they must also carry 
certain types of Canadian programming services so that Canadians have access to the services that were based in Canada. This doesn't mean that the CRTC is attempting to wall some kind, create a walled garden where Canadians can only have access to the bits that the CRTC chooses. Rather, it just says among all of the services you operate or you offer, you must ensure that some of them are Canadian. And this is going to be an interesting issue for C10 because it's not at all clear whether online distribution undertakings are even contemplated in C10. Really? Because I thought that was the whole point of the bill. Well, what the point of the bill is, in theory, is to regulate online programming services like Netflix. But what Netflix is offering is its own content or the content for which it has paid rights. Yeah. However, suppose you subscribe to Rogers Cable or Bell 5. Those services simply give you the programs of other services. So they're you know, you have the difference between a programming service that gives you its programming and a distribution service that gives you many other people's programming. Mm. So the bill will cover programming services. It's not clear in my mind whether it entirely covers distribution services. Okay. And that has financial implications for consumers. Okay. Because that's that's where I think we have to get into the looking at some sections of the bill and, and go from there. And we'll try to make this as, as understandable for people as possible. And again, knowing that Monica is the expert and I'm like trying to keep up here, <laughs> uh, paddling as fast as I can before I go over the waterfall. This whole thing with, you know, distribution and programming and who, who creates stuff and who distributes it. And we haven't even got to the the layer of who gives you access to the means of getting you know, the signal, like in other words, your internet connection, and just know that some of our big companies like Bell and Rogers also provide you internet to let you even get the signal to get your Netflix. Anyway, to me, it's kind of like, you know, the way people think of the human body. Well, you know, cartoonishly for most people, it's like, well, there's a skeleton in there and then some flesh around it. But, then, you know, they're surprised to hear doctors talk about how there's a lymphatic system and, you know, there's adrenal glands and there's mus- muscles and ligaments. And you're like, oh, my God, this is so complicated. I can't take it. OK, but we're going to dive in anyway and be these. Am- we're back to our metaphor of, of open wounds and things. So we're going to open up the patient now and see what the bill is trying to do to. I guess what you're saying, Monica, is lump the new services that are delivered sort of into the bucket that we think of as cable TV over the internet and whether it does that well and whether it's aspects where it could be acting more like a conventional broadcaster, whether it's going to be covered by this bill and whether any other new and other problems come about trying to do that surgery on the patient. <laughs> and, and again, we can, I'm going to stop there because otherwise I'll start talking about anesthetic. Anyway, let's just go into the bill. I've got a very nice piece of paper here, which you provided me, which is a side-by-side comparison of the act, which presently stands, which I understand was passed in 1991. Is that right? Yes. And this new bill. And you've kindly gone through and, and highlighted some areas with comments where, where you think there are problems. And, and I, I don't think doing justice to this 80-page thing that I can um, stop at every colored box and say, here's a problem that's been identified by FRPC and or Monica. But I I do want to stop at some of the big sections that even from with my limited understanding and and maybe 
some other folks out there in, in our listening land will know about already. Like the way I try to explain the broadcasting act to people is the only thing you got to read is section three. <laughs> because okay. I mean, this is this is what I tell the articling students just to like put them off for twenty minutes so I can do something else and then come back and talk to them. Like, go read section three and then we'll we'll talk about what broadcasting is. It is a laundry list of what Canada's broadcasting policy is, and with that, uh, let's call it deemed fact in existence because the section tells you what our broadcasting policy is. Then other things happen. In other words. Based on that, we can then license in a certain way, which is we spoke about at the top of the, uh, the show, licensing that you need to have a license to broadcast in Canada for the most part, and also allows the CRTC to do regulations, which are kind of like guardrails around the, the license for general matters, just to, to make the whole system work properly. Those two things flow out of the deemed fact, I'll call it, that's stated in section three. In other words, the way we want the broadcasting world to look like in Canada is laid out in section three. Do you think that's fair? Yeah. And I can give you the metaphor that I would use with, if, if we were going back to the blood and gore metaphor is that in 1991, parliament considered that there was a problem with at the heart of the broadcasting <laughs> system. And so section three sort of represents the beating heart uh, of, of broadcasting. Nice. Now, um, Another way to look at this, too, for people who would prefer to avoid blood and gore is to think of this as a roadmap. When you look at Broadcasting Act, Section 3 is where do we want to go? Mm-hmm. And then the rest of it is how do we get there? Because okay. I'm a violent person by nature, I really like the idea of a blood and gore metaphor. I think uh, it's important to think of Section 3 very clearly as a map. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing about this particular map is that when courts think about statutes like this, they also kind of view it as a map, but they, they view one particular thing as especially important, and that is the notion of, of how directorial parliament wanted to be. So, for instance, in the Broadcasting Act, you'll see many instances where it says Canada's broadcasting policy should do this, it should do that, it should do several other things. You will see very few instances where it says Canada's broadcasting policy shall do X, Y, and Z. And this is an important distinction because if we are, because what the courts understand by should and shall is that regulatory agencies empowered by statute must generally accomplish shall objectives, and then they have the discretion to choose about should objectives. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, a really big thing that is hidden in Section 3 is the fact that nowhere does it require the CRTC to put the public interest first in whatever it does. Except for that bit about CBC, if there's a tie. Well, CBC, if there's a tie, but again, that is not putting the public interest first. It says put the interests of the CBC should be paramount and the public interest should be paramount, but only when there's a conflict. And since, you know, how many times since 1991 or in fact 1968 has there been a specific conflict? Well, well, 
I can give there you one, but we're one. holding it for the end of the show. Yeah, <laughs> no, we don't want to we'll... get into that because that's ancient history. <laughs> okay. And I would prefer just to say that, you know, as you pointed out, this is a very long section. And just so you know, I once had to do a comparison of the 68 Section 3 version or version of Section 3 and the, the 1991. And it quintupled between 68 and mm. 91. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that, that just indicates that it's, a, it's an area that has the attention of legislators. I, I'll just back up to your should and shall business. To some extent, you know, again, I'm having these little epiphanies while you talk, which is interesting. The should and shall thing is difficult to apply to a policy because policies don't act in the world. People do, like licensees, actual companies do. So to some extent, I think there's an, ex, an expectation that's built into the act of good faith that there is this regulator called the CRTC that is going to then apply this policy to particular licensees, which is the mechanism that's there now, right? So they say, oh, here's our policy. Oh, here come, here cometh Rogers Media asking for a license for all of their TV stations. We think Rogers Media should, because we've got all these should sections do X, Y, Z, but you know, because Rogers is a former cable and they've got this particular system, this one might be a little harder for them. So we'll give them a little bit of a break, but here they've got a great distribution system. So we'll be a little bit tougher here, you know? And uh, that, I think that was the assumption, not that the CRTC would look at the shoulds and just say, yeah, we're not going to do them. But I think, you know, in recent history, perhaps there's been a little bit of, yeah, we're not going to do them so much. And, and uh, maybe I'm misspeaking, but I, I think so. And, I understood from your comment that maybe in a world where the regulator might be getting closer to being captured or friendly to the licensees, you you might want to have more shells in there. Does the new act change this section three to have more shells? Does it do anything else, the new section three, that's different from the old section three? Because the new bill does change it. I don't believe that the new Section 3, as proposed to be amended by C-10, actually adds more shells. But the main problem, the, the very first and most striking feature, is that the 1991 Act states that Canada's broadcasting policy declares that the Canadian broadcasting system shall be effectively owned and controlled by Canadians. Now, first of all, Although that implies, it sounds as if it's saying each and every undertaking in broadcasting must be effectively owned and controlled by Canadians. That is not the case. The courts already held 20 years ago that if a few systems here and a few systems there are are foreign owned and controlled, it's not a problem. So that's with respect to the act. But now that section is entirely gone. So... There is no requirement under Canada's broadcasting policy for Canada that Canadian that the Canadian broadcasting system shall be effectively owned and controlled by Canadians. It's gone. Yeah, that's I guess the heart of the heart. I mean, it's it's a sort of a to me that Section Three A. I remember reading it the first time when Bell was trying to buy Astral the first time. Because mm-hmm. that's when I finally had to look at the Broadcasting Act after trying <laughs> to avoid it for like 10 years. I thought, I don't want to get into this stuff. It looks too complicated. And I remember thinking, whoa, that's a pretty bold statement just to say, okay, it's going to be owned and not, you know, owned and controlled by Canadians, generally speaking. You know, generally speaking, it's a pretty bold, you know, like I said, deemed reality. The Act says this is the way it's going to be. And you're like, okay, guess what? That's going to take some hardware to 
to you know some some regulatory action to make that be a reality and in fact there's that's where all the the license conditions and all the regulations and all the other stuff the CRTC can do and know they've trotted off to the Supreme Court of Canada many times to defend that ability right that's a pretty bold statement but just to rip it out I even noticed that is what I'm saying when I saw the bill and I don't think you can underline it too much to say whoa whoa dude where did that go because to me if you take out the heart of the heart like it might stop beating like this is the this is the sort of reason why we're here am i overstating it well it will, be, it will sound self-serving if i say well of course that's why we're here. <laughs> yes it will but, but i would step back a bit and say well why do we even need that section Mm-hmm. Why do we need to establish at the outset that our policy is that the system must be owned and controlled by Canadians? And one reason I would think is because it establishes the notion that we have the right as Canadians to control what's happening in our communication system. If we give up that right, what does it mean for the future? Because in looking at C10, it's here before us now. So the temptation is to think about what impact it has now. But the 1991 Act is, what, 30 years old nearly? Mm -hmm. What will Canada's broadcaster communications system look like in 2053 with with these changes? Will it be predominantly owned and controlled by Canadians or not? And why does that matter? I mean, guess what you're saying is it will be difficult to defend some things, whatever those things are, Canadian content, whatever that is, and or Canadian or Canadian outlook if you don't have that because then presumably you have no excuse for saying no to well maybe not foreign ownership right away because there's other rules that might make that hard but to let's call it creeping internationalism in not to say Americanism <laughs> in Canadian uh, media if if you have no longer have the excuse as a regulator to say well that you know we're, we're going to insist on these things that are meant to produce Canadian outcomes, right? And and now we don't have them. So there's no excuse to tell the broadcaster or the producer why you're putting this rule on them because they can turn around and say, well, why are you doing that? Like, there's no because need. Because if I were, if, if I were a member of a court hearing this case, I'd say, but Lay, if it were that important, why did parliament remove it? Yeah, exactly. Well, like I think we're seeing the same thing is that if it's if it's taken out, there will be consequences. And I guess I also noticed that there was precious little all light. I, I maybe I missed it in the broadcasting and telecommunications law review report, which is when we talked to the one people call Bitler or Butler or whatever, the Yale report, all sorts of names for it. But maybe I missed something in there where they said, you know, this should be taken out. I don't recall seeing it. And if it is in there, I don't know, I missed it, that it was a big deal. It seems to me in other years, I know that the act, as you said, was changed in for 68 and then for 91. And, and before both of those, there was like a gigantic commissions with huge reports and they went through all of these and many other details. And I didn't see one of those before this bill. I think that the Bittler report did actually suggest removing Canadian ownership and control, but what they didn't say is why. And like you, John, I know that you reviewed many of the Bittler submissions and I reviewed, you know, I don't know, 150 of them. I didn't find every single one. I didn't find half. I didn't find a third or a quarter. 
I think maybe three of them even touched on the issue. And I don't believe, you know, I can't recall anyone vehemently arguing that the best thing we can do to strengthen Canadian audiovisual content and distribution is to remove effective ownership and control of the system. So I don't know why that's there. Now, it is possible because I haven't, you know, done a proper analysis of it. It is possible that the latest United States-Mexico-Canada trade agreement has an impact on this section, but then, you know, I think it would have been helpful if the minister had explained it. You know, at least then one could understand why, and then if you understand why, you can think of maybe there are alternatives. For instance, you know, one thing is when we think about the conventional system, we have licenses. Who but a crazy person would want to understand the system well enough to know that suppose that uh, Bell out of the blue announced that it wanted to sell its North Bay television service. And suppose that uh, Mr. Pelado through Quebecois decided to buy it. No one else can apply to buy it if, if Quebecois has actually applied for the right to own the license because the CRTC does not allow this kind of competition when it comes to gaining control of an existing service. If you want to compete, you might have to open up your own service, which is, you know, presumably then why online services are so popular, because that's exactly what people are doing. They cannot get into the conventional system, so they're creating their own services, like this podcast, like many other things. So, you know, it's if, if there were easy answers, you know, the problems would probably be easier too, but here, when we're looking at the outset, is this notion that, you know, the system doesn't have to be controlled by Canadians. It's a concern. Okay. And, and of course, that's not the only one, for instance. Well, just stop you there. Just want to tie this one off just to say that it just struck me. I think you're correct that it wasn't made an issue in the discussion that preceded this bill. There was not a Royal Commission or other government-led thing besides that BTLR semi-autonomous report that discussed this. And it seems to me, and I think you're right, that this idea, rather radical, just came out of the blue. And I do not understand what's driving it at all, at all. And unless it's, you know, an awkward attempt to avoid a certain uh, government and council order about foreign ownership, which we may get to, but probably won't because we won't have time. Anyway, I just want to underline that it just seemed to be a an out of the blue fundamental change that is is really a flaw in this bill and and will have to be addressed in in some way or there a damn good explanation. So your second point was you said you were going to move on to another section of the bill or a section of the act that the bill yeah, changes. Yeah, and just to to go back to that one bit about. You know, we've had royal commissions in the past. We had the Kaplan Sauvageau Task Force. We had the 2003, the House of Commons Heritage Committee on Culture, et cetera, producing its own report on the state of the system. Each of those three things in the past has produced far more in the way of actual evidence to support their recommendations than the Yale report has done. I think the Yale report provides admirable context and analysis, but if we're looking at the impact of this one change, for instance, removing effective ownership and control, I might have thought that I would want to know, well, first of all, how much foreign ownership is there in the system now? Because 
non-Canadians can acquire both shares and non-voting shares of Canadian broadcasting undertakings. So in theory, you could look at the change over time in levels of foreign ownership to see whether that had any impact on financing or the availability of CanCon, production of CanCon, anything like that. You're not suggesting there's already foreign influence through minority ownership in Canadian media, are you? I'm suggesting that there have been times, for instance, you think of the uh, CanWest Destral transaction, mm-hmm. when most of the money, nearly all of the money came from non-Canadian sources. So even though they had no voting control, they certainly had a say over expenditures. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the investment company from the United States on its website at one point said, well, we never invest unless we've got say. So I'm saying that we don't know because nobody has done the analysis. Okay. So the question is, well, who would be able to do the analysis? And you would think that the CRTC, because it is required to ensure that services are Canadian owned and controlled, would track levels of foreign ownership. And in fact, they do not. Well, there's, there's something to get to. Maybe we'll return to it in the CRTC series coming up. What's your next uh, issue with this bill? Because I see that our time is not trying to a close, but just racing away from us. So, Well, another one is the notion, for instance, that in the past, Parliament looked at the availability of Canadianness in two ways. The first, it said the system should be Canadian, and then it said each and every broadcasting service should ensure that each of them makes maximum use and in no case less than predominant use of Canadian creative and other resources in the creation and presentation of programming. In other words, Please use Canadians when you make CanCon. Please make a lot of it. Please make sure that you use more of that than you do for non-Canadian programming. And that's essentially gone too, because now it says the commission can look at each undertaking and, and determine what's appropriate for each undertaking. Mm. Okay. So that's that's an issue. So it, that, that and that idea was to make it. So if you turned on any Canadian station, at any hour, you would eventually, within a few minutes, figure out, hey, this is a Canadian station. I'm not watching the Detroit feed, you know, right now. I'm watching a Canadian station. Like, this is the goal of the thing, so that in their everyday broadcasting activities, that it was clearly a Canadian product, station, whatever you're watching. Well, I think that's one way of looking at it. I've always looked at it the other way, which is to say that when Canadians turn on the radio, when they turn on their television, or these days their online programming service, if they were to watch for several hours during the day at one point, they might be offered some Canadian choice. Okay. Gotcha. That's cool. Okay. That's a better way to look at it. There's one thing that I noticed, and I know that you noticed as well, because we're used to dealing with companies coming every uh, five years or seven to ask for a new license. And when you look at the CRTC website, it's kind of daunting. That's part of the reason why I didn't want to do broadcasting because there's like three pages of broadcasting license renewals up. And, um, you know, out of them, to be honest, you know, I don't really care about, you know, the north of Sault Ste. Marie license for radio renewal of CBC. Like, so what? You know, like, yes, you should get it. But that is, in a sense, getting swept away by this new act. It seems to me that there's a new category for the online delivered services, which is not a license, but is rather a registration And the idea of a registration is that with a registration, you can have uh, Netflix or somebody who has no, uh, Netflix does have some Canadian uh, operations, so I shouldn't use them. But let's say Amazon Prime that has no Canadian connection really can be part of the system, but not have to be licensed because only Canadian 
based, I'll call them, broadcasters can get a license. Am I understanding that right? But that this new bill provides this new registration scheme, which is something parallel to the licensing scheme? Well, I think yes and no. Yes, in that it refers to registration. No, in that it does not set up any kind of parallel scheme. Okay. Nothing that is equivalent to what it has already set out in the on, for the licensing system. Do tell. For instance, the way it works is that, first of all, you start by saying, if you operate without a license, you can be prosecuted. Mm. We make it an offense to do that, but there's no equivalent offense for, for, for not registering. Then we say, if you want to get a license, go to the CRTC. Mm. Then if you want to change your license, go to the CRTC. If you want to renew it, go to the CRTC. If you don't do appropriate things with your license, let's say that you decided that you wanted to do something really, really terrible and I can't even speculate because you know there's so many horrible things. Well just say just say you had a wildlife channel and you decided to instead start showing urban life. Oh you can do that anyway now but let's instead that you decided (laughs) to take your wildlife channel and you graphically mutilated and tortured animals online. I'm sure that would be not just a criminal code offense, but it would also breach the hunting station. (laughs) And um and so there are all these provisions for licensing, none of which is stated for registration. So we have no idea how the registration system is supposed to work. And one way of looking at it is that Parliament presumably trusts the CRTC so well that it relies on the CRTC to do the job. Do the job, meaning they're going to put registration requirements that... Set up a registration scheme. I don't know what the scheme would entail, but since... You know, you can make you can make a failure. Perhaps you would order people to register, and then if they fail to register, then you would administer you would levy a fine. Sure. Maybe that's the way Parliament anticipates this will work through the situation. So the question is, should it be left entirely to an agency such as the Commission to figure out what Parliament decided not to figure out because of the timing? Except that the very much in the open discussion about this registration requirement now is to make over-the-top providers, Amazon Prime, Netflix, Hulu, Disney, blah, 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 pay as a registration requirement, some at the moment, unspecified, people keep using numbers, amount to be a registrant into either in kind by producing Canadian shows or an actual amount of money into a pot like the Canadian Media Fund. Canada Media Fund, I guess it's called, in order to be a registrant. And I guess on the assumption that companies that are over-the-top providers want to be in the Canadian market and will play ball, in other words, they will accept these registration requirements as a cost of doing business in Canada, and therefore the system will end up with lightly regulated foreign providers, regulated just enough to squeeze dough out of them and put it into the system, and then we produce... Canadian content or, or whatever the requirements are. And then, then it just gets into details about whether if we do that system, the registrants, in other words, the foreign people can now dip into that same pot. They put the money and take their money back out, <laughs> right? And make Canadian shows in Canada and then show them on Netflix. That seems to be the assumption of what's really good. You know, I hate these bills that don't say what's really going on, but but then the minister will say that's really what's going on in the media, at least if not in parliament. So that's the real politic of, of what's going on here. I, I, I take your point that there's other registration requirements that we're trusting the CRTC will put on 
put on them like you know decency or portrayal of women or whatever but i wasn't even thinking of that i mean i I wasn't thinking of the the old concept of regulations i was just thinking how is it supposed to work you know we know that you that if you don't have a license you can be have your equipment seized let's say by the rcmp Mm -hmm. if you don't register what happens presumably there might be something that the crtc devises my only point is that is that I think it's more Parliament's responsibility to set up whatever plan it has for how this is supposed to play out than to rely on what is essentially its agent to make those decisions. And, you know, one of the things that's also happening through this statute is we talk about, I mean, registration, as we already said, is ill-defined. For instance, how long would a registration last? I don't know. Would you ever have to renew it? I don't know. But for licenses, as you said before, a license was like a driver's license permit. Licenses are effectively owned by the government. They're not owned by a broadcaster in the same way that you as a driver don't own your, your, your driver's license. And so under the current act, the CRTC can renew or issue licenses for periods of only up to seven years. Now, these days, it doesn't even renew for seven years. It renews for five. But what the new act does is it says the license term can be indefinite or fixed if the commission wants. So so if registration is indefinite, then licensing can become indefinite. So then you fast forward 30 years to see what's the potential impact. And one potential impact is that you have a very well-established set of broadcasters and not much new entry, either through the online service or the existing. We, we, We don't know, but this statute gives us no assurances one way or the other because it offers no guide rails for the CRTC itself. Yeah, so it's it's leaving a lot to be decided by the regulator. And that's, I guess, something that the, the minister is signaling is okay, a-okay with heritage, and they trust them. But- well, within, within limits, because what they give to the CRTC the power to find, the power to do this, that, and the other thing. They then take away because they say, they said in the when Heritage introduced C10, and I'm talking about Heritage, when I'm talking about the Department of Canadian Heritage, mm-hmm. briefed people on C10, it set out seven different areas where cabinet would now possibly set directions So whereas in the past, for instance, the CRTC defined Canadian content, now the minister would or, yeah, the minister or cabinet would, whereas the CRTC set up the way it wanted to engage with Canadians, now cabinet might direct the CRTC on how to engage with Canadians, also how to support diversity, how to behave in a a way that's fair. And how, in particular, to obtain contributions from online broadcasters. So cabinet has now suddenly expanded enormously the areas where it might decide to give express direction to what used to be an independent regulator. Right. This isn't a power that's completely unprecedented. In other words, even in the present act, the cabinet, which is the, you know, the federal cabinet, the, the ministers and prime minister, can, under the present give the CRTC broad directions as to policy in broadcasting and they have on a few occasions right I think there's yes. three or four of them at most and I remember something once about satellite and then there was the business about 
foreign ownership, but generally speaking, not getting into the weeds. So what you're saying is this new bill, Heritage Department in briefing about it, at least has signaled that there will be a companion policy direction, which in effect micromanages what CRTC is going to decide on these issues that otherwise you would think is within their core kind of competence. If, you know, if we were going by the old licensing model, which is actually building more political interference into the, the program than before. Exactly. And whereas, for instance, we have a broadcasting act that was established in 91 and there have been, there have been a few changes, for instance, the recent accessible Canada act, has mm-hmm. led to amendments of the Broadcasting Act. There has never really been this level of intrusion into what the CRTC is supposed to actually be doing. And of course, what this means is that each government that comes into office, provided it has, well, each cabinet, new cabinet, can issue its own directions and change those of its predecessors. Mm-hmm. So we get, so a, as you say, more political. Yeah, it's more political, and you can perhaps get wild swings in Canadian broadcasting policy rather than usual inertia, which may or may not have been a good thing, right? Well, I, rather than let's reframe inertia to predictability. <laughs> okay, sure. Classic and- reframing by a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> but well done. I'd be well a played. person. I'm trying to look for a better way of saying it nicely. <laughs> no, but, that's that's very well done, yeah. But, but in fact, you know, this the the notion of transparency, accountability, and predictability is something that almost every government department speaks of and has spoken of for the last twenty years. Mm-hmm. And of course, the CRTC itself often mentions we want to be accountable, predictable, and transparent. Well, if you can change the definition of Canadian program and music or levels of music from one government to the next, I think you're getting less predictable. And, and as well, I don't know quite how that would operate because if you, well, I guess the theory is you wouldn't ever have a license term. So you would now change what you do in response to government direction mm-hmm. rather than in response to CRTC policy that is timed so that it doesn't, it, it allows broadcasters to operate for anywhere from five to 10 to 15 to 20 years at a time without major shifts. Right. Now you could go from one government to the next and you'll see your policy change and your right. requirements change. And I, and I just, I believe that the kind of actors that can survive in that, let's call it Italian city state backstabbing <laughs> environment are the larger ones who have lots of little operatives running around Ottawa. And I can name you a few of our larger providers who may be able to carry that off, but smaller ones may have more difficulty in adapting to these sudden, you know, whipsaws of policy and some foreign actors might see which way the wind is blowing, but I imagine would more often be on the short end of the stick. I don't know about and, that. It well, it may, it may well be a way to shake people down. Is, is I'm going to just put not too fine a point on it, because if it's unpredictable and you've claimed the ability to put in almost anyone on the planet into this pot of registrants and you get a new government that, suddenly needs more money in, in the system or believes that something is necessary for the look and feel of the country, if I can put it that way, then then why wouldn't you suddenly change the registration requirements to be quite onerous or quite light on foreign operators, depending on what your political views are? I mean, it's not, it's not out of the realm of possibility that that 
and then that just uh, opens up more palace intrigue and yes. and it's just it to me it, it looks like a recipe for a very unpredictable again wild swing of things and those that feel they have an advantage in the market will stay in and, and from a consumer point of view again if you have foreign providers that are established in canada or feel the canadian market is important to them and want to play these games great they will stay in and play the games and maybe you'll get your, what you want and you won't see any difference or price increases some other providers might think it's too much work to play the game in Canada and avoid putting their service here, or they might jack the price because they got to hire a bunch of people in Ottawa to run around and do regulatory hearings and so on. Or they might just license it to one of the big players in Canada and be redistributed by, you know, Crave or um, uh, whoever else is going to pop up over the next few years because it's just easier, you know, and they get less money, but they still get their slice and they don't have to do this dance. And this all speaks to, as you say, the unpredictability of it. But then you sort of say, okay, and where is the system supposed to be in 30 years? And to that, you go back to Section 3. And Section 3 allows for a system that's not owned by and controlled by Canadians, that is not predominantly Canadian, that doesn't ensure high levels of employment for Canadians. And in the end, then, so we are going to tremendous effort because many, many people are engaged in the study of C10 and what to think about it, how to understand it. This huge effort to do what? Is it going to make Canadians better off? No. Making Canadians better off can mean yes in their pocketbook. We don't want to constantly see price increases that, you know, whereas before you'd buy one cable package, now you have to buy maybe a cable package and several other packages. So those packages are not rate regulated. Some are, some aren't, you know, that creates uncertainty for the consumer. It raises costs for the consumer. It may reduce value for the consumer to the degree that there is less original Canadian content, may reduce employment for Canadians. Of course, one could always look at the argument that, that I happen to be making right now and say, well, that's just the worst case. Well, isn't that the point? We want to look at a statute and say it will improve things for the following reasons. We don't want to say maybe it will. Maybe yeah, maybe it won't. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm just going to have to cut things off there in this discussion because I think we could go for two and a half hours, but I see we're running out of our, our recording time and, and Will, our uh, producer, is going to cut us off. I want to turn now to the segment we do at the end of the show, or it's getting to be a tradition where we say, told you so, and talk about things where we've told somebody that the consumer interest is here and, and they say, no, no, of course not. And then you say, well, actually it is. <laughs> And look, here's here's the proof. So I got one, and I think maybe you got one. Mine is paper billing, and people will be following this issue. Uh, if you've received a notice from your telecom or broadcasting TV provider that you are no longer going to receive a paper bill going forward in the spring, a lot of people have received those bills and are very angry about it. They've called their MP, and I encourage that. The companies uh, are presently in a CRTC hearing, um, which comes out of a another hearing we had where we tried to nip this issue in the bud, but lost. Anyway, long story short, there is a considerable number of questions that CRTC has asked of the companies in just in the last few weeks. Um, things like, oh, when you tell people that you're changing them from electronic, from paper to electronic, did you send them an electronic message? <laughs> or did you send them a paper message saying you're going to change them? And getting all sorts of interesting answers back from the company. I think the companies thought, that this proceeding was finished and they would be able to 
sneak this issue by MPs and consumers. And to me, it's clear that the CRTC, through whatever channel, has been made aware by probably members of parliament that their constituents are mad. And we told them they would be mad. We filed a petition to the cabinet to try to reverse the first decision on getting rid of paper bills that was done by Kudo. And, you know, everybody keeps doubting us. And we keep saying, you guys, this is going to be an election issue. People hate this. It's like taking away mail delivery to the house. It's the same deal. Don't piss off old people. And, you know, they, I think, have started to get blowback. So I just want to say, told you so. And there probably will be, I'm hoping, an alignment of CRTC decision and the petition answer sometime in the spring when we get the decision. But some of the answers are extremely revealing is all I'll say. We get a chance to comment on them again in January and uh, we will do that for you, dear consumers, in January to make sure we can try to keep paper bills for you. So that was my one. I, do you have one, Monica? Of the similar do, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that, that the only reason the commission is, I think, giving paper billing any consideration is because of BX push on this. So kudos, so to speak. You, John, well, it's us getting it's people calling us and saying this is really important to to, to them. So, so I also credit the uh, our our co uh, our co applicants, the National Pensioners Federation, that have a lot of members that are very invested in this issue. So, I have one that has to do more on the you know paper billing is both a broadcasting and a telecom issue, and the one that I have has to do just simply with broadcasting, and in particular the proceeding to renew the CBC's licenses and its existing exemption order. Some people may recall that there's been an, a new thing arising on the CBC, which is the sale of branded content. It's like a very long ad, and you don't, you may not necessarily easily recognize it as an ad. And so, uh, this branded content initiative, which is called Pandem within the CBC, was announced by CBC in September. It became clear that there were a number of issues with it, uh, specifically why a taxpayer-funded institution such as CBC should now be selling audiences to advertisers in a way that isn't immediately and consistently clear to audiences. The forum wrote at the end of October to ask the CRTC through a procedural request to please add tandem to the hearing that will be held in January. We're waiting for a response. Uh, Fortunately, a group of employees, former employees of CBC also wrote the CRTC. They wrote, ended up writing, I think, three times And another letter went to the minister, and it was after the letter to the minister asking the minister to direct the CRTC to investigate Pandem that the CRTC decided at least to let people already attending the hearing in January to discuss it. So that is something, and I'm glad that this, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that the CRTC accepted and granted uh, the former employee's procedural request. I kind of wish our procedural request might have been heard. Maybe it will be in the next year. And uh, I guess we'll just wait. But I'm, it, it's, it's always good when the CRTC clearly shows how well it listens to Canadians and, and organizations such as PA. Right, but you told them. Okay. I didn't well, want to say it like that. <laughs> no, that's the whole point of the segment. So that's good. I think we have to finish it there. And I want to thank our guest, Monica Auer from FRPC, which is frpc.net. If you want to check out their website. And again, uh, lots of lots of great stuff on their website. This is our our fourth podcast, as I said, wishing everybody good holidays and, and good health. As we, uh, I think, lock down here and maybe in some other places in the, in Canada, and hopefully we come up the other side 
all the better. And if we're in the cold and dark months in January, hopefully we'll have some more podcasts for you to listen to. And uh, if you want to follow us, we are on uh, social media, Canada PIAC, and um, we uh, are just revamping our website and it's PIAC.ca and you'll find links to the podcast there. And we're on Spotify and Apple podcast and overcast and all these things. And I want to thank my producer, Will, again, from Pop-Up Podcasting in Ottawa. And uh, thank you all. And we'll see you guys in the new year. Thanks, John. All the best. And the same to you, Will. Thanks for listening to this episode of We Fight for That. The Public Interest Advocacy Centre needs your help to keep making this show and to keep fighting for you. I'm John Lawford. See you next time for another round of consumer protection. Consumer protection.